Hi, I'm Scott Lacey, and this is Talking Documentary. The COVID-19 pandemic has been the great disruption. No matter your ethnicity, your language, your hemisphere, it's safe to assume that wherever you are, your life has changed a lot over the last 15 months. But this hasn't always been for the worse. For one aspiring visual artist, the pandemic changed her life in an unexpected and wonderful way. Danny Connor Wild, a young wildlife photographer, found herself trapped in the wilds of northern Sweden when the pandemic's curtain fell. This led to a chance encounter with four orphaned baby squirrels, a burst of inspiration, and then finally, a debut documentary film, The Squirrels in Me. Danny Connor Wild's film has become something of a YouTube sensation, collecting nearly one million views in just over three months. Danny Connor Wild joins me today from central Mexico, where she is taking in some much needed sunlight and finding some new wildlife. If you hear periodic noises in the background, well, those are grackles roosting in a tree near her window. A wildlife photographer knows such things. Well, well, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm curious how you wound up in northern Sweden in the first place. And that, by the way, must feel very far away right now. Yeah, it does feel very far away. I was a volunteer last year. And I was volunteering for this wildlife photographer called Connie Lundstrom. And I went out there to sort of help out with um, helping with guests, uh, preparing dinner, preparing beds, etc. And the benefit for me would be I'd be in a very wonderful uh, northern Sweden, covered in snow, lots of forests. And so for someone who is trying to be uh, wildlife photographer full time. It gave me the opportunity to concentrate on my photography. And I went out there in March and I was hoping to be there for a few weeks. And the lockdowns happened because of COVID and I actually got stuck there. So I spent six months in North Sweden last summer. Wow. That's uh, the timing of that is quite amazing. Uh, I'm I'm curious, even people who make it to Sweden don't typically go that far north because there's not a lot up there. What is it like to live way up there in northern Sweden? Yeah, it is very isolated up there. Well, when I arrived, it was March. And so because you're so far up north, there's actually very little daylight. I would wake up around nine o'clock and it would be sunrise and it would be sunset in early afternoon. And because there's such little light, it actually makes you quite sleepy. Um, so it was a very interesting experience to witness that amount of light. Um, but the village I was living in, there were only about 20 residents and they were mostly elderly. So I just wouldn't see people. Um, and I was seeing, well, I was definitely seeing more wildlife than people. So were you living alone throughout this six months? Pretty much. So Connie would come maybe twice a week to check up on me, pretty much, um, because he lived in the city, Schleftia, which is about an hour away, and that's his main home. And he uses the, I guess, the photography house only in the winter season because he has a uh, eagle hide, which he rents out. So people across the world will come to this hide rent it and they get photographs of golden eagles and snow. Uh, but during the summer months, he doesn't have customers. And so I was pretty much alone. Um, 
I got to know a couple of the villagers. Uh, a few of them spoke English. Um, but yeah, I was pretty much alone that whole time. You really have to be cut out for that sort of challenge. Six months, Northern Sweden, living alone. What was that like for you personally? It was good. I really enjoyed it. Before that, I was living in London. I was working at the Natural History Museum. And to go from seeing thousands and thousands of people a day to sometimes no one, um, it felt good for me. I was fed up of city life and I wanted a well, some fresh air, really. Um, but I've experienced life in isolation before. Um, I was a field biologist in Costa Rica and I was following spider monkeys um, every day for about four months. And I was doing that field work on my own. So I was in the rainforest pretty much all day on my own. I would only see people in the evenings. So I was used to isolation, but not for six months. I would imagine that's really good for getting connected to wildlife when most of your connection with living things is the wildlife. Yeah, definitely. Um, when you're surrounded by forests and nature, it definitely connects you more to wildlife. And I, I, I think it humbles you a bit um, when you're just, your day-to-day -day life is just about seeing um, nature. You don't have TV. I had a bit of internet, but seeing a new species, for example, was just a highlight for the day or something happening. For example, I remember when the ice on the lake uh, defroze, basically, and um, for the first time I saw water and it just felt like after weeks and or months of ice and snow and minus 25, it felt like spring was on the way uh, and that felt really good. Uh, and it was suddenly getting lighter. There were new species of birds arriving. Um, and that felt really good. I would imagine this is what really kind of set the context for you getting so connected to the stars of your film, if you will. Tell us about finding this family of orphan red squirrels. <laughs> yeah, squirrels became my friends for sure. Um, so I started to photograph squirrels around the house as soon as I arrived. And they were very nervous. The that area in North Sweden or in Scandinavia in general, uh, they are hunting communities. So they will hunt anything from a bear to a squirrel. So these squirrels aren't like our city squirrels that just run up to you. Uh, they are quite shy. They're wary. And so because of this, I just thought, well, how am I going to photograph them? Because they won't even come down from the trees. And so I started to create uh, camera traps. This is a camera with a motion sensor. So anything that the motion sensor detects, it will then take a photo. So I was able to leave the camera in the forest and then come home and discover that the camera has taken various photos of these squirrels. And because I was going in and out of the forest, they started to watch me. They realized that I was the one bringing the food. and they slowly started to trust me. And at this point, I was spending a couple of hours in the forest. But, but then when it started to get warmer in spring, I just thought I'd spend even longer in the forest. And, it, and when I did spend more time there, it didn't take long for the squirrels to 
recognized my call and they gained my trust quite slowly and they were able to approach me. And there was one squirrel in particular uh, that I loved to photograph and her name was Remy, uh, named after the rat in Ratatouille. And she started to be the first squirrel to approach me within a meter. And I was able to do various photography projects with her. And then one day I found her next to the road and she had been hit by a car. Um, And at this point I knew she was either pregnant or she'd already had baby squirrels or kids somewhere in that forest. And I felt pretty gutted for her um, because I knew that these squirrels were either in a dray, which is a squirrel nest, up in a tree and they're probably just going to die um, because they're too young. Um, and so I went into the forest one day or the day after I discovered that she had died and I found a tiny squirrel, uh, running around on the ground and it was quite scared of me. It ran up a tree immediately and I then waited seven hours that day to see if any adult squirrels would go up the tree. I left some food, some water and I saw nothing. And then the following day, they had discovered the food and the water and they were actually free. I saw that day. They were tiny, about six weeks old, but they had teeth. So they were able to eat solid food. So these squirrels have definite personalities. Can you share a brief description of each and uh, the name you gave them? Yeah. So there were, in the end, I actually discovered that there were four baby squirrels and I'm able to identify them by uh, their ear tufts, the color, uh, the length of their tail. They have small differences, but when you spend so many hours with them, you start to notice the differences. And so the four, the the main star uh, who went viral on Twitter from an audio recording, his name was Baby Pear, and he liked to uh, be very noisy when he would eat pear because that was his favorite food. And he was a baby, so baby pair. And his sidekick was Chiburashka, which is named after a, a, a Russian cartoon. My mother is Russian, so felt fitting. Uh, and he's also got very circular eyes and ears, like the cartoon character. Then we had baby Moomin, which is named after another cartoon. Uh, she was the lightest uh, and almost a white red squirrel. Um, and the fourth was Little Flame. He was. He looked very similar to Baby Pear, which is why it took me a while to realize that there were four, not three. Um, but he looked very similar other than he had slightly smaller ear tufts and less gray in his face. But I could only, I only realized that there were four when they were both sitting next to each other eating. Um, but when I did notice the differences, it made a lot more sense uh, because I kept getting confused with, I kept, I thought baby pair was everywhere. So at what point did you realize this relationship that you had with these squirrels was turning into a story that would later turn into a film? I was filming small clips uh, of their day-to-day life. More just for, I was going to post them on Instagram, maybe like a 30-second reel, and or post them on Twitter. And I... At the time, I had no idea that I was going to make 
a 30 minute short film. And I was only just photographing and filming them for uh, my photography work and sort of social media accounts. And after a few weeks, I started to get a lot of footage um, and I started to, fo- I started to focus on um, different snippets of their life, um, how they were learning how to cache, which is where they collect food and store it into the ground. And this is an important strategy for surviving winter. And they were starting to explore more of the forest and they were doing various things and they were learning on their own without a squirrel lover or other adult squirrels in the area. And as I was collecting all these clips, I realized that, well, this could go somewhere. And I then started to collect sort of B-roll and footage of me walking into the forest. And in my last few weeks, I decided to put my phone on the ground and see if I can get the squirrels next to me and I can be there with my camera. And I got a few of those shots and those, I, when I posted them on, on Twitter, they did really well. So I knew that this story was evolving to a, a connection between me and these baby squirrels. And that's where the, the real focus for the film began. So I'm fascinated by the logistics of everything you had to keep under control. You've got video of the squirrels. You're probably taking stills as well. Um, you're getting your own reaction shots. When I'm watching the film, I'm like, how did she get all these shots? Um, can you tell me a little bit about the kind of the technical challenge of getting what you got? Well, actually, one of the biggest challenges I had with the baby squirrels at first was them getting to know me. They were quite shy to begin with. Um, they just, they had this instinctive uh, knowledge that they, they have to run away from me. So the first thing I did was actually put a pop-up tent, camo tent in the forest. And I would sit there for hours waiting for baby squirrels to come down the tree because they were only active for a few hours. They were mostly sleeping, but they didn't have a, a good time. They would come sometimes at sunrise, sometimes in the middle of the day, sometimes in the afternoon. And so I was just like, okay, I'm going to go into that tent and just sit there. Uh, had some snacks, had my phone. Uh, fortunately, that's 4G. Um, so I could just sit there and wait for them to come down. and. Eventually, I could put more of my body outside of the tent and they got used to me within a couple of weeks. But because they were so small, I wanted to capture that immediately. I didn't want to wait for them to gain my trust before I spent more time with them. But then it got to a point where they were approaching me. They understood my voice and they were fine. Um, But to begin with, I was focused on just filming them. And I got so many, so much footage of just eating. Um, and then I wanted to diversify my footage a bit more. So I focused more on them exploring the forest and the different behaviors they were starting to learn. And towards the end, that's when I was just like, I really need to focus on the B-roll and the extra content and getting like recordings of the, um, of the forest sound recordings of the birds. Yeah, so at the start, it was mostly just, I was recording anything, baby squirrels. And towards the end, I started to focus on individual things and 
sound recordings. So waiting in the forest for squirrels to appear sounds like the most Zen activity ever. What is it like for you? Uh, are you reading? Are you just thinking, meditating? Yeah, it's definitely very Zen. I was listening to music or on my phone or sometimes just I would close my eyes and just listen to the forest. Um, but at the start, I was struggling with the mosquitoes massively. Um, I had no idea how many mosquitoes there are in Scandinavia. Because the forests are quite uh, wet and damp, there are just millions of mosquitoes. And it took me a couple of weeks to work out how to be in the forest and not get bitten. At first, I was coming in with, I mean, it was quite warm at this point, but I was coming in with waterproofs, wellies, a mosquito hat. Um, and once I got into the tent and managed to kill them all, then I could take off all the waterproofs and that got more comfortable. Uh, but I ended up discovering a thermocell and it releases a, um, a scent which mosquitoes hate. Uh, but I got one which was uh, natural. And so even the baby squirrels realized that if they're near me or if they're near this device, they won't get bitten by mosquitoes, which was quite useful because it meant they would they would go near me. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a very peaceful time to be in that forest. So at one point, and you mentioned this earlier, you had a social media post that just blew up. Were you surprised by the huge reaction you got? I suspect this was in the middle of the process. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was the first week or two that I started recording some audio clips. And I was amazed that that video went viral because the footage is out of focus. Um, I was recording because I wanted the audio, not the video. But when I heard these squeaking noises, I thought, oh, I'll just put it on Twitter. Uh, it's only 16 seconds. And at the time I had only a couple of thousand followers and within two days I had 30,000 followers. Um, the video had 14 million views at that point and there were celebrities sharing it. The big one was John Boyega from Star Wars. Yeah, I was getting comments from people all over the world. People were telling me about their squirrels and their garden and I realized how important our local wildlife is because a lot of people have been stuck in their homes for months and they've started to connect with the, the, the garden birds and their local squirrels. And so I felt like a lot of people were connecting with the video because they had similar experiences in that they were getting close to their local squirrels. Um, but I think people were very surprised to hear what a baby squirrel really sounds like. I think people love to listen to that sound for the first time. So at one point you left Sweden and this is a significant plot point in your film and we won't spoil that for people who have not seen it, but what, what happened there? Why did you leave and why did you wind up coming back? I left because I hadn't seen my family for six months and it was better to travel because of COVID. So um, I knew it was a good opportunity because if I waited until autumn, it, I could be stuck there for a year. Um, and we didn't really know 
what was happening. Uh, so I returned home to London and that's, that was actually a good time because it meant that I could actually focus on editing and putting the footage together because I had hours and hours of content and I ended up returning in November. So several months later. Was it difficult to leave the squirrels? Yeah, it was. Um, I was actually also quite nervous because a large area of forest next to the village had just been cut down. And there was a chance that that forest that I was visiting would be cut down. So I was very nervous with what would happen uh, with the forest, but also with the squirrels. I left them at an age where they were independent. So they they were starting to find their own territory and they were at a good age where they were feeding on their own. They didn't need me to provide them with any food. Yeah, they were at a good age. And so I knew it was a good time to leave them. But it was definitely hard to leave baby pair in the gang. Let me ask you a question about kind of you as a professional I'm curious, what are the differences between wildlife photography and wildlife cinematography? Yeah, they're very different, actually. And I find it difficult to concentrate on both. I have to either be taking photos or either be uh, filming. Um, Because when you film, you tend to need a tripod with the big lenses that I use. You know, when you're taking photos, you're in this mindset that you need to have good composition, good light. But when you're filming, your your focus is to try and film different behavior, different kind of footage, like what are the animals actually doing? But photography, if they're just sitting there eating um, seeds, then you can get some great shots and you can actually, the good thing with baby squirrels, they would often sit in the same position. So you can move around them and try and get good light in the background or yeah, different angles. When I'm trying to film and photograph at the same time, it got quite hectic and chaotic. I've got better at it now. And I think in the future, it would be beneficial for me to have two cameras. So I could have one that is ready for photos and one that has the settings that are ready for a film. Um, But I got better uh, with time to do a bit of both. Do you now have to like decide when you go out, I'm going to shoot stills today or I'm going to shoot video? Like, how do you, how do you break down that challenge? Yeah. Um, recently I've been focused more on, um, video and I've been focused on video because I've, since I've posted that short film, my YouTube is starting to grow with subscribers at the moment. Each video is making 50 to $70 for 10,000 views. It makes you think about these big YouTubers um, because if they're posting a video a week, it's very easy to see how you can make it a full-time career. And because of that, I'm focusing on sharing how I take photos and the sort of the, the story about my photography. I think also people like to have that connection with a content creator. They like to see how they talk, how they vlog how they interact to wildlife. And so now I've started to create this series on YouTube that's called Diaries of a Wildlife Photographer. Um, And it's about my experiences out in nature. People are starting to like that a lot. But I'm still focusing on taking photos and 
sharing them on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, and I've also had this weird dilemma recently. Am I a content creator? Am I a wildlife photographer? And sort of what is my niche in this field? Um, there are not many wildlife photographers on social media that just do social media. A lot of wildlife photographers will be filming for BBC Earth or um, et cetera, for you know, TV or Netflix. They'll be doing photography and Instagram stories, et cetera, on the side um, for engagement. So, yeah, I'm having that, a bit of that dilemma at the moment. But also I'm realizing the uh, potential for TikTok and I've been focusing on that for the past few days. And TikTok is a weird world. Um, it will take me an hour to make a 20-second clip, but it could take me an hour to edit 20 photos. And I've got, you know, three weeks worth of Instagram sorted. Um, it just seems like a lot of time for these short videos. But the thing of TikTok is that I think one in 50, 60 videos goes viral. So it is, I think, easier to go viral on that platform and to gain a following. My sort of focus at the moment is just to engage people with nature who don't necessarily engage with it at the moment and to connect people. I, and I think that's what the squirrels and me did. Uh, they, connect, they were more connected to their local squirrels and their local wildlife. Um, but the audience on TikTok is not a an audience who necessarily would notice wildlife, their local wildlife. Um, so my aim is with if I can create these short videos and people see a local squirrel and someone getting close to them, they might be more inclined to go into their local forest and find some wildlife. What I loved about this film is, you know, I grew up watching wildlife films like anyone else. And they're, they're great. And they teach you a lot about wildlife and those are important films. And yet there's a, a lack of intimacy there that in your film just came through so strongly, your point of view, your presence, your personality. Do you have any thoughts on where you think this could go for you and for others? Absolutely. Yeah. When you watch the David Attenborough documentaries, the older ones, he might be there. Uh, there's a great clip of him being I guess, attacked by a cabcaley, which is a, a large uh, grouse bird. But at the same time, he's still talking about this animal. He's talking about its animal history and its behaviours, etc. It's great to see that interaction with a wild animal. And I feel like at some point, natural history, cinema photography, went to a point where we don't want people in the shot and it's all about being completely immersed in nature and bring the viewer to these incredible landscapes. But I think people really like to see that connection between a human and an animal. And there's lots of documentaries about people living in zoos and people love to see how humans and I think even children connecting with animals. And I think when I made my film, I had this weird dilemma where I didn't want people to think that wild squirrels are pets or wild animals in general are pets because at the end of the day, I am naming these squirrels. And when you name an animal, it immediately makes you think that it's potentially a member of the family or you're more closer to that 
animal, but I wanted to make it clear that these are wild animals and I'm in a unusual but fortunate position where these squirrels have lost their mother and I am therefore able to get close. When it came to a point where they were old enough to be independent and they didn't need me, I started to do simple things that would make them more wild. I would just keep my distance or I would sprinkle the food across the floor to encourage natural foraging instead of leaving it in a small pile. So, yeah, it is interesting to see how well my video has done. I don't know whether that would be something that um, wildlife documentaries will include anymore. Um, We sort of rely on David Asprey to do our voiceovers for these big documentaries, but we don't really see him much anymore in them. We don't see many wildlife presenters these days with the wildlife, and you mostly just see people who work in zoos with animals, and there's this sort of, uh, I think, a division that with it, when it's wildlife, you stay away, you keep your distance and you don't get close and you don't name them. They stay wild. But then if it's captive animals, you can give them names because they are living in the cage. Um, and I like the idea that we can have this the same connection we do with captive animals with wild animals, because when you're spending so much time in nature, you do start to notice individuals and they will have their own characteristics and personalities. And when you can name an animal and you know that animal does this thing, he likes this kind of food, or he comes at this sort of time, you develop this connection and it brings you much closer to nature in general. So you're down in Mexico now, and I imagine that means you're working on something cool, new and different. Is there anything you can share at this point? I'm actually sort of just living here and enjoying the weather, the vegetables, the fruit. Um, But being here has been incredibly beneficial because it means that I can focus on editing videos and photos from the past year. When you're living in nature and you have squirrels and various species on your doorstep, I couldn't help but just be in the forest all the time taking photos Um, And so I've got a lot of footage and photos that I'm working my way through. It's been really beneficial because it means I can post a video almost every week on YouTube um, from the past year. And I have managed to travel a little bit in Mexico. I was in Oaxaca a few weeks ago and I was able to get close to crocodiles and iguanas and various tropical species. And in a few weeks, I will be going to Cancun, which is almost the edge of Mexico, um, all the way down to the south. And I'm hoping to find spider monkeys um, again. Um, I studied them for my dissertation several years ago for my for university. And so I'm hoping to find some spider monkeys again, but also various tropical species. There'll be squirrel monkeys, howler monkeys. Um, I'm hoping to dive with sharks. Um, So that will be a big trip and that'll be in a few weeks time. That sounds like a wonderful experience to go to Mexico and kind of consolidate the experience of the last year. I want to say that I think your film is kind of representative of what makes YouTube so great for all the the bilge that's out there. There are these wonderful works of creativity that would be very difficult to get them on 
you know, a broadcast TV station. And yet the technical quality of your work is right up there with anything else. And the, again, the intimacy and the personal touch is just so unique. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and best of luck in the future. And I really hope you stick with the filmmaking because I think you've got a gift. Thank you. I have some videos in mind um, that I want to make, some more short films. And I'm actually returning to Sweden this summer. And I've got a big project in plan uh, about that forest. But yeah, we'll see what happens. Where can viewers, readers, listeners go to consume your various works of art? I'm pretty much on every social media platform. It's Danny Connor Wild, Danny with an I, and Connor with double O. And yeah, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube um, with that name. Danny, thank you so much. I, I look forward to whatever's coming next. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Danny Connor Wild. Her debut documentary film, The Squirrels and Me, can be seen on YouTube. Just search for The Squirrels and Me. Before I go, I want to share some news. Talking Documentary is joining the Fandom Limb Podcast Network. Every podcast needs to find its people, and by joining Fandom Limb, I'm hoping to find more people like you. The Fandom Limb Network is focused on visual arts podcasts, so you'll find lots of great content in the realm of television, film, and screenwriting. FandomLimb.com. Check it out. I'll also be telling you about sibling podcasts on the network. To get things started, I leave you with a hello from another Fandom Limb podcast, Screenplay Archaeology. See you next time. Have you ever wondered about films that never made it to the big screen or even television and streaming services? Well, then the Screenplay Archaeology podcast may be for you. On our show, we take a look at scripts or teleplays that were never produced or sometimes even early drafts that were significantly changed before or during shooting, as well as the stories behind why they never came to be. Good script or bad, we consider them all to be fair game. So if any of this interests you, then come check out Screenplay Archaeology. When you want to break up your fall monotony with something new and interesting to eat, try Blue Apron's two-in-four serving menu plans with those hard-to-find ingredients sure to spice up your weekend. With 60-plus options each week, you can choose from an ever-changing mix of high-quality meat, fish, vegetarian, WW-recommended, and health-conscious offerings. Get a $100 gift card, plus enjoy $130 off across your first six orders when you place an order by September 23rd. Visit blueapron.com unique2022.